Thanks, Glenn. Uh, yes, so as Glenn said, my name is John, uh, or Jonathan. It's kind of weird when I'm at work with my family, I have to go by Jonathan because my dad's name is John as well. So when I sign emails and send out any requests or anything, I'm Jonathan. And then outside of there, I go by John everywhere else. So everybody is kind of a, a mess. I will respond to anything. John, Jonathan, hey, you. Uh, I have three younger brothers who also have J names, Josh, Joel, and Jordan. So those will probably work too. Um, yeah, exactly. My parents, I don't know what they were thinking. So that's a little bit about my family. Uh, I currently work with all of my family, my mom, my dad, and all three of my brothers in the business that my dad started about 30 years ago. Uh, we don't kill each other, uh, which is awesome. We actually quite enjoy working together, which makes it really fun. Uh, a little bit about my background. I uh, went and studied biblical studies about 10 years ago. Oh, that's such a long time ago um, for me anyway. And so about 10 years ago, I graduated from uh, a school in Portland. Uh, I finished that and I got back home. I grew up and born and raised in Abbotsford, spent uh, almost all of my adult life, uh, youth life at Northview. And so when I got back, I entered an internship there at Northview working with young adults. I uh, did that for about a year, took a year off, and then Northview uh, at the time was starting up their Immerse program, which if you don't know is their uh, in-house MDiv program, and uh, I was approached by some of the people and said, hey, would you be interested in this? They had known me through the internship and doing my biblical studies, and so I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do that. So in 2016, I started that uh, I finished it in 2020, thanks to COVID. I think I'm the only person who actually is thankful for COVID because it locked me in my house for eight months so that I could finish my degree. Um, everybody else was like, I got locked in my house and I hated it. And I'm like, no, nope, it was great. So uh, that's a little bit about me. Uh, I finished that and I, like I said, moved back into working with my family at the business and I now love the opportunity to, to try and find opportunities where I can serve local churches by speaking or coming and doing some teaching and uh, looking forward to, to the opportunities as God gives them. This is one of the first times that I'm getting back out there and, and doing this. Um, we're going to be studying Psalm 37, just one verse, verse 4 today. Uh, so if you want to turn your Bibles there. But before I do, I want to read this quote from, from Blaise Pascal. He was a thinker in during the Renaissance, and was a Christian thinker. And so he says this, he says that all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. What Pascal is trying to say is that we all pursue happiness. We're all chasing it. In fact, the, the, the framers of the U.S. Constitution, they put that in there as something that is essential to being a part of what it means to be human, the pursuit of happiness. And we all... I think, feel this to a certain degree, but then when we step back, we, we, ask, we have to ask the question, what is Scripture, what does God say about our happiness? Where are we to place our happiness? How are we to go about finding our happiness and our joy? And I think Psalm 37, 
verse 4 actually sums it up really, really nicely. In fact, I would say that Psalm 37 verse 4 is almost kind of a summation of what it means to be a follower of God. So let's look at, at what Psalm 37 verse 4 says. It's really short. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. We're going to look at that in in two ways. First, the command, and then the promise. So starting with the command, delight yourself in the Lord. If you don't know that, that first word, delight, is actually a command. We're We're to take delight. We're supposed to find enjoyment in the Lord. It's a command. It's something that we are called to do. And the object of that delight is the Lord. Now, in in most of your Bibles, it'll be capitalized L-O-R-D. And if you don't know, if if you've never seen that or heard somebody explain it before, when you see that, that means that that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is God's covenant name that he shares with his people so that his people will know that he is in covenant with them. So what David is saying here is, is that I take delight in Yahweh, the, the one who has promised himself to his people, who has revealed himself to his people. And so this is the person that is to be the object of our delight. So how do we delight in things, in persons, in objects? Well, as I was sitting during the service, I was looking around, and I see you guys have some photos of mountains or nature or those kinds of things. And it, 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 it helped me think through this. We, we enjoy things by spending time and experiencing those things. So we see a photo, and we, we see that somebody in this photo on the mountain, somebody's enjoying this moment in the mountains, And yet, when we sit here, we can see the beauty and experience some of the delight in the photo, but we know that if we were actually there, it would be so much more. If we were actually in that moment, experiencing that view with the the smells and the, the wind and the temperature and all of those things, that experience is far greater than the experience of a photograph. And the same thing goes for our experience of God. The way that we delight in God can be through people like me coming in and, and, and speaking about who God is and what he is like. And we enjoy that and we take delight in hearing about who God is. But it is so much greater when we actually begin to take those steps ourselves. When we begin to take the steps of, of saying, God, I'm going to pursue you. I want to experience you. I want to know your character and praise you. And so what does that look like? Well, some of it looks like just taking time in God's word. Opening up God's word and reading about the God who reveals himself there. When we were on our drive up, we are driving up the Sea to Sky, and we're coming around some of the corners, and I've done this drive many times, but every time I do it, the drive is always too fast. 
I can never have enough time when I see the stunning view as we come around a corner or come over a hill, and then I see it and it's gone. And I always want to stop the car and get out, but I'm always busy. I'm either doing work or we're coming up here, and I always want to get out and just stop and pause in that moment. And what reading scripture is, is it allows us to actually take time and pause rather than just drive by and think about what God is like. It actually causes us to slow down, to read, and to understand who God is. Some of us need to actually make that a priority. I know I say that and I I speak to myself that's, that's a hard thing for me to do, working with my family, moving back out of ministry. I've realized that time is hard to find. I get up early, I come home late, I'm tired, and then I want to spend time with my wife. And yet, I realize that if I don't intentionally carve out time where I say, this is my time, where I'm going to spend some time in the Word praying, it'll pass me by. And I'll get a glimpse of it, but I won't actually experience the fullness of it. And so some of us just need to make time. Just say, look, I'm going to set aside this time of day, whatever it is, 10, 15 minutes, and be in God's word. Ask God to reveal his beauty and his character to you. And he will. He promises to do so when we open his word. So one of the ways that we begin to delight in God is by just pursuing him in his word. And some of you may be thinking to yourself, well, okay, so I, you say delight in the Lord, but I don't, even, I don't even know if I have that desire to delight in the Lord. Like, I, I believe all of the things, and I, I say yes and amen to the doctrines that I believe, but this whole idea of delighting in God, I don't know, is, is that something that I, I really have? But we also know that if you choose to spend time studying and experiencing a thing, you tend to fall in love with that thing and enjoy that thing. Uh, I am a big football fan. I have been for a number of years. My Two of my brothers have been for as long as I can remember as well. My one brother, though, he thought we were weird. He thought we were crazy for following football. Because we'd get all into it. We'd play fantasy football, which if you don't know, it's like you choose a team and you watch on Sundays and cheer for the guys, even though you have no business doing any of that. But, so we do this. And then my one brother, Joel, he was like, okay, I'm going to do this with you guys one year. I think you're crazy, but because we're brothers and we want to be kind of doing this together, I'll do it with you one year. So he begins to do this, and he begins to study the game of football and learn about it, and he begins to choose his team, and he starts to watch football from September to February, and all of a sudden, by the end of February, he is by far the biggest football fan in our family. So much so that he's got a team that he cheers for in LA that he'll go down and watch games because he's that much of a football fan now. And the same thing happens when we pursue God. When we earnestly pour ourselves into pursuing and desiring to delight in God, God will give us a heart that enjoys him.
The psalmist says it this way, that he waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. The Lord inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps sure. He, the Lord, put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. See, what our role and what our job is is to put ourselves in a place where God can fill us with that joy. So if I know that the way that I'm going to get fuel in my gas tank is that I'm going to go to a gas station and fill it up and it's going to happen, then I should go to those places where God has promised that he's going to reveal himself. I should go to those places where, where God has said, here's where I'm going to show up. It's not, a, it's not like it's going to be a, a mathematical formula. The gas station is not the greatest illustration because it happens every time, but when God shows up, he does so through particular means. He will do so as we are in the word, as we are praying, and as we are gathered here together as his people. He will stir our affections through those things. Not because it's some magical ritualistic formula, but because that is how God has said he will work for his people. So let's pursue those things. And as we do these things, as God gives us joy in him, the final outworking of that joy and that delight is praise. When you delight in something and when you enjoy something, you want to talk about how much you enjoy that thing, how much delight you took in that thing. So when I have friends that will come back from their vacations, let's say it's the middle of winter and they've gone to some nice beach and they come back and they want to show you all the photos and they want to tell you about how hot the beach was and how nice the sand was and how beautiful the ocean was because they are, they are trying to express how much delight they had on their vacation. Right? When you see parents posting videos and photos on Instagram of their kids, it's because they're so delighted in how their kid is growing and growing up and accomplishing things that they want to share it with everybody. They want to praise their child. It's the same thing. We do this with anything. Think about anything that you delight in. You want to talk about how awesome that thing is. And this is the same thing that we do with God. And not only do we do with God, God commands that we rejoice in him. Paul, when he's in a Philippian jail, chained to a wall, is saying, rejoice in the Lord always. And it's a command there to rejoice, to praise God, to take joy in him. So we should do this. When, when we're praying, we should praise God for his character. And as we gather here together, we sing these songs of praise, because not just because this is something we do, but because this is what we are commanded to do and because it is the outworking of what we are as God's people, those that enjoy and delight in him. So as we think about what it looks like to delight in God and who he is, I want to just take us through a couple of passages of scripture that might help fan that flame. So in, 
In Genesis 1.1, God says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So think about that for a minute. Everything you see is the result of God's handiwork. And not just the result of his handiwork, but the fact that all God had to do was speak and universes came into existence. I don't know about you, I love sitting at night under a starry sky and I look up and I see the vastness of that and then I think about the fact that all God had to do was say exist and all of these stars popped into existence. That planets were formed. And then you think about it a little more, and not just the, the, the bigness of creation as a result of God's handiwork, but even the minutia of his creation. The smallest thing is the result of God's handiwork. And we should take time to just praise God for how creative and how good he is in creation. Or think about how magnificent and majestic God is. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah writing to the Israelites about how they have some worthless idols and how they're, they're nothing compared to God says this. He says, Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? So think about that for a minute. If you, if you were to cup your hand and make that little hollow right there, God does that picks up the earth in the other as though he could dump all the water out by tipping it over and the entire vastness of our oceans and our lakes and rivers would fit right there in God's hand. As we were driving up, I I could see the ocean and I'm thinking to myself, how does that work? Because I can read it and I could try to imagine it and then you see it and you're like, it does not make it. God is... God is magnificent. And then I mentioned the, the stars that I like to sit under and how the vastness of our universe exists. And God goes, okay, so that universe fits right there between his thumb and his pinky. He can measure the universe there. The entirety of our existing world fits right there. Millions and millions of light years. This is the God that we worship. He is majestic. He is transcendent. He is wonderful. But he's also merciful and gracious. In Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8, Paul writes to the Philippian church saying, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So think about that for a minute. The, the God who spoke the universe into existence, who can hold the waters of the earth in his hand, because he loved his people, said, I will leave my majestic, I have everything here existence, and I will become 
a dependent, crying baby. And I will take the form of man, of humanity, because I love them and I am merciful. And not only does he do that, he humbles himself by dying. And he dies a criminal's death. Death on a cross was not something normal that happened. That was reserved for traitors, murderers, and the worst kinds of people in Roman society. And the God who spoke life into existence, who was life himself, said, that's the kind of death I'm going to die for my people. Because he's gracious and humble and merciful. And Psalm 103 says it this way. He says that he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And we sung this this morning. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. See, God is forgiving. All those things that you think are attached to you and you carry with you through this life, God says, nope. That death that Christ died worked a kind of grace and a forgiveness in your life such that God says, as far as east is from west, that's how far I have removed your sins from you. East and west don't touch. They run in opposite directions away from each other. And that's what God does for his people. He says, I will take your transgressions, put them on Christ, separate you from separate them from you so far so that they will never again be tied to you. You do not carry them with you through life. God has paid for them. And this is just the beginning. We can keep doing this all morning. And I bring these things up because I want us to stir our delight in the character of God, who God is. We can enjoy God. We can praise God because of these things. And there's countless ways that God has shown up in all of our lives that he can be prayed for, praised for. So delight in the Lord. And then the promise. He will give us, give us the desires of our heart. See, we love this part of the verse, don't we? Right? We, we read, he, take, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And immediately, I'm like, dear Lord, I would like a million dollars. Actually, could you make it two? Because inflation sucks. Now, of course, I'm not saying it as bluntly as that. And most of us wouldn't say things that bluntly to God in prayer. But sometimes the nature of our prayers, when we read verses like this or others, about how Jesus promises to to give us what we ask for, we ask in this kind of way. We ask for for a a sum of money and then say to God, yeah, God, but I'll give most of it away, but I just need a little bit. And the reality is we're not asking God to give, we're asking God to get and then trying to make it okay by saying, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give, like I'll earmark some of that for your church. And the problem is, is that 
we skip over that first part about taking delight in the Lord. See, if we take, he will give you the desires of your heart and divorce it from the first part of that verse, it's useless to us. See, as we take delight in the Lord, our desires are reshaped. We no longer desire the things of this world, right? Jeremiah promises this in Jeremiah 30. When Jeremiah is talking about the new covenant, about what will happen when God makes new his people, he says that God will put, God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, what Jeremiah is saying is that when, when God comes and makes his people new, gives them new hearts so that they want to delight in God, he actually has changed their desires. And this doesn't happen immediately. Most of us who have been Christians longer than a few minutes can know that when we became Christians until this point now, God has been constantly showing us ways in which we desired wrongly. Ways in which we thought we were desiring a good thing, but God was actually saying, no, actually, you're desiring that thing for the wrong reasons. See, I brought up money earlier because I don't think money really is the biggest problem in our lives. It's what we think money can get us. So we think money can get us safety, security, comfort, power, influence. And so what ends up happening is we want money for the things that we think it can give us, and we're chasing those things, desiring those things, instead of seeing that God has already promised that all of those things that we desire are fulfilled in him. Tell me, where are you going to actually find true security in this life? In the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who speaks things to existence, or in some money that up until January was doing okay, and then January showed up, and (laughs) nobody's got any money anymore. So really, where, where do you want to place your hope? In that, or in the one who's been here since the beginning? And I could do that with with whole host of other kinds of things that we desire. But the point is, is that what is it that we want the thing for? And so many of us, when we read verses like this and we say that God's going to give us the desires of our heart, we treat God like the genie in a lamp. We say, God, I want this thing. Yeah, 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 I delight in you, but really this is the thing I want. So God, give me the thing because you promised to give me the desires of my heart. And what this passage is saying is if you truly delight in God, God's going to become the desire of your heart. God's going to be the one that you desire above all other things, and he promises that he's going to give himself to you. In Luke's gospel, when Jesus is teaching about prayer, one of the stories he gives is he says, okay, if if you who are wicked know how to give good gifts to your children, which one of you, if if your child asks you for a loaf of bread, is going to give him a snake? And they're like, nobody, of course. And then Jesus says, so much so will the Father not give you the Holy Spirit when you ask him. See, God has promised over and over in Scripture to give us himself 
And when we delight in him, we desire him, and he will be faithful to that promise. He will give us himself, and our delight will only grow because if God is an infinite God, there is nothing that can stop that joy from continuing to grow and grow and grow for eternity. The problem is not that we desire the wrong things. The problem is that we don't desire God enough. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. It it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition and money and whatever it is when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. See, what Lewis is getting at is he's saying, Our desires of these things happen because we don't recognize the greatness of joy that is found in God. And when we do find that, our prayers become, God, give me more of you because I want more of joy in you. I want more of you because as I do that, I praise you and my joy is increased and it overflows into others. So as we think about what it means to to have the desires of our heart, will we remember that the desires of our heart are directly tied to the things that we delight in? So let's ask God to give us hearts that delight in him and who he is and know that he has promised that he will answer that prayer because if we delight in him, he will give us the desires of our heart. Let me pray. Father God, I'm so thankful that your word is is clear. And Father, that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Father, as we seek you, as we pursue you, Father, would you be faithful to your word and would you fill our hearts with your joy. Father, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you fan our joy and our delight in you into larger fires that light other fires in the lives of those that we know? Father, we are thankful for your grace and we praise you for making us your people. In Jesus' name, amen.